Good morning. I trust you had a uh, good week serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, bringing Him glory through submitting to the Word in your life and making Him known to the world around you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us a day of rest, a day of worship, a day whereby Jesus rose this first day of the week and conquered the grave and death and sin. And 40 days later, he ascended. And this morning, he is at your right hand. And thank you, Jesus, that right now you are interceding for your children, and you are, you are our advocate, and we worship you this morning. We come to you, Heavenly Father, recognizing that we have failed you this past week. We have not always honored you in every aspect of our lives, and we confess our wanderings, our sinful thoughts, our snappiness in speech, our pride, our independence from you. We confess these as sins and there's more. And we ask for you to forgive us and to cleanse us. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood washes and cleanses us from all sin when we confess our sins to you. And thank you that you are our intermediary. We don't go through any earthly priest to have access to God. And so we thank you that when we forsake and confess our sins, we have the assurance from you that they are removed. We worship you for that. And we ask that this morning... As we look into this narrative section of scripture, that you would grip our hearts and that you would use the word to um, root out sin in our lives and to encourage us to look to Christ and to walk in your ways and to trust the authority of your word. And Would you grant me the ability to speak what your word says to stray and to not stray from the text, and that even as we come to a, a application at the end, that these applications would be in tune and in line with what you're teaching us here. We need you, Lord. I am weak. I am frail. My audience is weak. And they are frail. And our tendency is to drift from you. And so stir us up within. Help us, Lord, to work together, I as I speak and as the congregation listens. And may you be glorified this morning and Christ be elevated. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've chosen uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 as my text this morning. We were uh, absent last week and... When uh, we returned home, my wife looked on the um, Crossview uh, Facebook page and she says, 
Daniel preached out of 1 Samuel last week. I said, oh, because I had been studying in 1 Samuel. And, and uh, then I kind of got a little bit anxious and wondered, well, what was his text? And uh, we weren't coordinating this. I had no idea that he was going to be preaching out of 1 Samuel. And so he, he preached out of 1 Samuel 1. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't uh, have a chance or opportunity to listen to it. I look forward to doing that um, soon. But um, our text is 1 Samuel 4, and this is a narrative section that actually extends all the way through chapter 7. And I was really tempted to go through all of this narrative because it really belongs together. But as I dove in deeper with chapter 4, I realized there's no way I can get through all of this. So we're going to limit to chapter 4, and then, Lord willing, I'm scheduled to preach at the end of June, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to finish out that narrative block the next time. So why did I choose this? Well, I was in this book, in my own private devotions, and the Lord spoke to me, and it was a real refreshment to my soul, and so I started to study it out more. And the more I, I got into this passage, I thought, well, you know, I'll just go ahead and preach it. So the title of the message is, The Glory Has Departed. The Glory Has Departed. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 1, first part of the verse, The word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Chapter 1 of 1 Samuel records God's providential gift of Samuel to Hannah, the wife, Elkanah, that was barren because God had closed her womb. God answered her prayer for a son, and Samuel was born. And after weaning him, she fulfilled her vow to the Lord by taking Samuel to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. There she entrusted Samuel to Eli, She told Eli that she was lending Samuel to the Lord for as many years as he would live, that is, his entire life. And after giving Samuel to the Lord, we read in 1 Samuel 2.11, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that is Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then the next narrative talks about Eli's worthless sons. They did not know the Lord. They abused and misused the sacrifices that people brought to the Lord. They treated God's offering with contempt. Immediately after describing these worthless, worthless priests, we are told that Samuel was ministering before the Lord and a boy that was clothed with a linen ephod. So he was being trained to be a priest eventually. And then again, we read that after talking about how that the Lord gave additional children to Hannah, um, we, we see this. The boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And then the narrative switches back to Eli. And he is um, rebuking the evil of his sons. And then after that, we have 1 Samuel 2:25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And immediately after that verse, we have yet another update on Samuel's um, maturation process. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then the narrative 
then moves to God rejecting Eli's household, which included Eli's sons. God said that he would raise up a faithful priest in their stead. And 1 Samuel 3 documents when God calls to Samuel in the evening to tell Samuel that God was going to fulfill the promise he made to punish Eli's house forever. And then at Eli's request, Samuel conveys the message that God gave to him. He conveys that to Eli. And then chapter 3 closes this way. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God was talking directly to Samuel. And then we come to this first part of uh, verse 1 in our text. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So do you see what's happening here in the text? You have God dealing and exposing the sins of Eli and Eli's sons. And, and uh, they were priests before God, and they were abusing God's sacrifices. They were not godly leaders. And here you have the gift of Samuel, and Samuel is uh, ministering to the Lord. He's serving the Lord. Um, we have him continuing to grow in stature and favor with Lord, with the Lord and with man. You know, he's, he's marked, and people are noticing that Samuel here is different than Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. And then it's Samuel growing, and none of his words fell to the ground. And it says that all Israel, not just some of Israel, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord and that God was revealing his word to Samuel. And you start here in the first verse, and it seems awkward, as you'll see, as we will read the rest of the text. Like, why, how does this relate? And I really believe that this belongs as part of chapter 3 at the very end, that the word of, the Sam, uh, word of Samuel came to all Israel. And what we'll see is, is once we dive into the rest of this text, Samuel is conspicuously absent. They're not looking to Samuel. They're not seeking Samuel's advice. And things just continue to devolve all the way through chapter 6. And it's not until chapter 7 that then Samuel calls them back to repentance and to look to the Lord and to true worship. But we'll have to um, see that in, a, in a, another time, another preaching message. So here we have Samuel developing into a godly prophet that hears God's voice, and he's developing in favor with not just God, but also man. He's speaking for God, and he's ministering to the Lord. So I believe that what we're seeing here is there's a leadership transition occurring in the life of Israel. It's not complete yet, but there's something happening in the life of Israel. And so our next... Um, section here is then in verse 2 through verse 9. And I titled this section as a crisis of ungodly leadership. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. 
The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So let's make a few observations based on this text. We have Israel and the Philistines fighting each other in battle. The Philistines defeated them and killed 4,000 Israeli soldiers. And then the Israel's leaders mentions them as elders, so they would be leaders in Israel. They asked why the Lord defeated them. Now, that's an incredibly important question, right? You just went to battle. Here you are, Israel, and you have the Philistines, and you fight, and you are defeated, and 4,000 of your fellow soldiers were killed. And you'd have to scratch your head and say, why? I mean, what's going on here? And we know from other passages in the Old Testament, God intended to drive out the, the Canaanites and the people of the land And that when Israel was in tune to the Lord and following the Lord, there was victory and God would work. But when they would turn away from the Lord, there was God's removal of his blessing. And you see this in the book of Judges over and over and over and over again. Israel would wander. And then God would raise up an army and come into Israel and fight. And they would either have their crops taken or they'd be defeated and and then they would repent and come back to the Lord, and then the Lord would deliver them. And you're, here we are in First Samuel, so we're at the end of the, the judges. Samuel would be the last judge because he would have been a kingmaker. And so here they are again. Fight a battle. They lose a battle. Why? Why did we lose this battle? Now, imagine yourself being in Israel during this time. Can you insert yourself into the story here, in the narrative? Imagine if you're a woman or a child. Wouldn't you be afraid? We have enemies that are intent to rule over us. They're not friendly. They're killing us. And here I am as a woman 
who, and a child who, in general terms, is weaker in a societal sense, you know, physically not as strong. You're depending on the men to protect you. What's going to happen if the soldiers of Israel lose again? Or if the Philistines move in in a deeper way, you'd be anxious. You know, are they going to pillage us? Will they take away our food and destroy our crops? Will they haul us away as slaves? Will they kill us? Will they rape us? Imagine being a mother. Wouldn't you be concerned for the welfare of your children? Wouldn't you be concerned for your extended family? You'd be tempted to fear, to worry, even dismay. All these would be temptations you would face. What if you were elderly? The strength of your youth has long passed. You can't stand up and defend yourself as you could have at one time. You're concerned not only for your own safety, but your children and your grandchildren. What if you were a soldier? Hey, I just saw some of my fellow soldiers destroyed in battle, killed. You know, what does this mean for my future safety? How many more will be killed? Will I be one of them? So answering this question, why did this happen? Why was the Philistines? Why were the Philistines more powerful than us? Why did they defeat us? This is an incredibly important question. Another observation is Israel's leaders considered that it was the Lord that defeated them. And this is interesting. Even though the Philistines didn't defeat them, they considered that it was the Lord that defeated them. In other words, they saw the Lord was fighting against them. Notice also that they, or notice who they did not consult to answer this question. I believe this is incredibly important. There's no indication that they consulted Samuel. We have already established that the Lord was working in Samuel's life. God's word was coming to Samuel. God was developing Samuel to be the next judge, the next priest, the next prophet. He was already being prophetic because God had given him in chapter 3 the confirmation that what God prophesied to, to, to uh, Eli is going to occur. And he repeated it again to Samuel. And we'll see in our text that that actually did occur. But they didn't seek Samuel's advice. And yet Israel knew that God was working in Samuel. Isn't that odd? Here you're faced with an incredible, um, difficult situation. You've lost a battle. Most likely another battle is going to come. Why wouldn't you seek Samuel, a man that God is working in his life, to give you word, the words of God? Furthermore, they did not consult God. There's no indication that they consulted God in this text. And this is sad that they did neither. What was the answer to the question of their defeat? Well, they decided, let's transfer the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to the front lines of the battle. And the elders thought that this would address the reason for being defeated by God and the Philistines. Now, I, as I studied this out, because I didn't want to conclude something that was not accurate, it led me to consider a little bit more about the ark of God and, and what was going on here. But notice what the text says. It says the Lord of hosts. So they're, 
going to get the ark of God. And it talks about the Lord of hosts as being enthroned on the cherubim. So they knew that there was a special relationship here with the ark of God and the presence of God. We would know and we believe that God is everywhere. Right? But in the Old Testament, there was something unique about the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of God was in the Holy of Holies. And on top of the Ark of God was the mercy seat. And then there were the cherubim. And then God is on top of the mercy seat. And what is inside of the Ark? You have the commandments of God. And the fact that you have the commandments of God, the commandments of God are what? Revealing to us that we are sinful people, right? And yet God is sitting on what? The mercy seat. So the mercy seat ties in with the idea of judging. You have the, the, law, the law of God that does what? It shows and reveals to us that we're sinful. The law of God communicates to us who God is. And it exposes to us that to be an image bearer of God, this is how we should live. This is what it looks like to be an image bearer of God. And so we're confronted with our sin and what is our need at that point. From God's perspective, God needs to, what, judge and pour out his wrath on our sin because sin cannot come into his presence, which is to say that sinners can't come into his presence without being consumed by a holy God. But here's hope. There's the mercy seat, right? And this mercy seat communicates to Israel that God is not just a God who is a just God who will pour out his wrath on sinners, but there is hope that God can be merciful. And so once a year, the high priest would do what? He would offer a sacrifice, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer the sacrifice for his sins, and then he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And there was very specific ways to go into this, might say, a hot spot of God's presence, even though God is everywhere. And this was a sobering reality. And so this is why our text talks about that um, God's presence was enthroned there uh, on the cherubim. And the Lord of hosts was there. Well, this phrase, the Lord of hosts, refers to God as being a, 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 a captain of the armies of God, a captain of the mighty host of heaven, a warrior God, one who fights his enemies, and so they're thinking about these things, God's presence there. And so you have to wonder, are they thinking, okay, if I bring the ark of God here to the front lines of battle, I'm bringing God's presence here as if I can manipulate and move God to do what I want him to do that's convenient for my means. This is perhaps what Israel is thinking. The reason perhaps went something like this. Since the Philistines defeated us, they're more powerful than us. Well, that's obvious, which could then lead to this. In order to defeat them, we need more power. So far, so good, right? To have more power, we need the Lord of hosts to fight for us. Yes, I would agree. The Lord of hosts commands the heavenly armies and Israel's army. But here's where their logic failed them. 
To have the Lord of hosts, we need the ark. So let's get the ark. One cannot move God's presence at whim. And this is what Israel is guilty of doing. Hophni and Phinehas were at Shiloh with the Ark of the Covenant. And it's worth noting that they did nothing to prevent the Ark from being moved to the front lines of the battle. They should have known better, and yet they did not stand in the way. In fact, we find out later that they actually were part of the battle, so they would have come with the ark to the front lines. And then the other thing to note is that the people shouted when the ark arrived at the battlefront. Their shout was so loud that the earth resounded. It was so loud that the Philistines heard it, and it caused the Philistines to become dismayed. You see, they thought at this point, they had confidence. Ah, I have now the presence of God with me. We now can go into battle and be assured of victory. This is what Israel thought, right? I mean, they're, they're, the fact that they're shouting and they're exciting, so much so the earth resounds and the Philistines hear it, they're confident now. Why does this point to a crisis of leadership? Well, first of all, there's a part of me that can't really blame the elders for not asking counsel from Eli and his sons. Now, I'm going to have to dip back in to previous narratives that have occurred. And since I haven't preached about that, we're going to have to go back in time. So in chapter 2... It describes Eli's two sons as worthless and not knowing the Lord. As priests, Hophni and Phinehas did not respect the regulations that God placed on how they were to receive their portion of the sacrifice for their food. They demanded a portion of the raw meat before it was boiled. If the person bringing the sacrifice requested that Hophni and Phinehas offer the sacrifice per God's regulations... Eli's sons would forcefully take it, selfishly get what they wanted, and in, that, and, and in the way that they wanted it. They totally disregarded God's commands. Hophni and Phinehas treated God's offering with contempt. And because of this, God viewed their sin as very great. What's more, they would lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Eli rebuked them for their evil. He was hearing God's people talk about the sins of his sons. And rather than heed their father, they hardened their hearts and continued in their sinful ways. So eventually, God sent a man of God to confront Eli. He reminded Eli of the privilege and responsibility of God for him to represent the people of Israel before God through offering their sacrifices And God directly confronts Eli with this question. This is piercing. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? God then told Eli that he had rejected him 
his sons and his offspring from serving as priests and that his sons would die on the same day. And God reiterates this judgment upon Eli and his household by talking directly in Samuel, uh, to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3. God judged Eli for not restraining his sons when they blasphemed God, even though Eli knew what they were doing. Eli's verbal rebuke was not sufficient. He failed to restrain them. And because of this well-known, ungodly, and self-serving leadership of Eli and his sons, it's not surprising that the elders didn't ask their counsel for why the Philistines had defeated them. I mean, why would you look for counsel to ungodly leadership when they're self-serving, when they're not following hard after the Lord? However, the elders did not ask counsel of Samuel, nor of God and his word. They arrived at their own opinion of why they lost the battle without seeking spiritual input from Samuel. And obviously, this, this, is estab- or this is odd and surprising that they did not do that. So, in spite of God clearly rejecting the existing priestly leadership and establishing Samuel as the replacement, Israel's elders did not seek Samuel's input. The other th- point that's important to note is God did not command them to use the ark of God in this way. And I could see how they might get confused by this because there were times that the ark of God played prominent roles as Israel made their way through the promised land or to the promised land as they were traveling in the wilderness. But consider this. They're on the move as a nation. They haven't reached the promised land. So the ark is being constantly transferred as they're moving along. In this point in their history, they had already moved into the promised land. And the ark of God had been established at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. And so there was no reason for the ark to be transported. So what we do, if you go back in some of the uh, um, Pentateuch, you'll see that it was associated with God's presence when God spoke to Moses from above the mercy seat. And that God used the ark to find a new resting place during Israel's wilderness journeys. So when God would move and Israel needed to pick up camp and move along, it was the ark that would go out. And the ark would go out and the saying would go, let the enemies of God be scattered. So the ark was associated with the scattering of um, the enemies of God. And then the ark would find a resting place. And then Israel would camp again. Per God's direction, um, the priests bore the ark when they were crossing the Jordan River. And God told them, here's the ark. You priests go over the Jordan River. And as soon as their feet touched the water, the Jordan River stopped, piled up on one side. The riverbed got dry and all of Israel crossed over. And the, the priests held the ark there. And then they crossed over and the Jordan River Return its flow. And then when they came to the uh, walls of Jericho, God commanded them, march around the walls of Jericho and take, have the priests that bear the ark be part of this processional, part of this march. But this was all part of God's direction. In this narrative, there's no direction from God to do any of this. And yet this is what they're choosing to do. 
The sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas allowed the ark of God to be removed by the elders of Israel. But this shouldn't surprise us because these were evil men. They blasphemed God and his means for people to approach him. So at this point in the narrative, in summary, we have Israel's been defeated by the Philistines. Their elders have misdiagnosed the problem for why the defeat occurred. The elders have proposed a solution that is not directed by God. And the elders have not sought godly counsel from Samuel. And the people have not questioned the decision, but have agreed to go along with it. You see, the people are culpable too. too. It's not simply that the leaders are guilty before the Lord. The children of Israel, actually, some of them question Hophni and Phinehas about how they were regarding the sacrifices. But here, there's no questioning about why are we doing this? What are we doing this for? And actually, I thought the ark was special. Why are we treating it this way? So now we come to the next section, verses 10 um, through 11. So the Philistines fought... And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So how well did this work out for Israel to bring the ark of God to the battle? They gave a great shout. We're going to be victorious. They go to battle, and it's worse than the first battle. A very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers died. And what gets worse, the ark of God was captured. The very thing that they had placed their confidence and trust in was now removed from their presence and taken into the enemy's camp. A total failure in understanding why they had lost the first battle. And here they were defeated, the ark of God captured, and Hophni and Phinehas, the very ones that should have protected the ark, they died. God cannot be manipulated. Here we have a low point in the life of Israel. And one of the indicators of how low it was spiritually is the very fact of how they were relating to God and how they misunderstood who God is, what his character is, how to even approach God through proper sacrifice, through proper offering. This is Old Testament. We'll get to an application here for us. But let me just say this. We as Christians, we approach God through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this should always remain incredibly precious to us. And here they had disregard. There was a disregard for the sacrifices to God. They had disregarded the means that God wanted them to use in their approach to God. And now they were trying to manipulate God to accomplish their own purposes. And in all of this, God is still sovereignly in control. 
God is not out of control. It seems that way. It's like, why is the ark taken into the land of the Philistines? And it's fascinating to see what happens in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and how um, what occurred during this time when the ark was in the land of Philistines. God does not require people to fight for him. He fights his own battles. He reigns supreme. And in this sovereignty of God and him accomplishing all of his purposes, we read then in verse 11b that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What's going on here? We read earlier that God prophesied this would occur. So even though Israel is making sinful choices, and even though Israel is not attributing glory to God and living a life that is not glorious before the Lord and reflecting his glory to the nations and to one another. Yet God, in his sovereign working, is bringing judgment, the judgment that he already said would occur. And this is what occurs here with um, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And then as we continue to read, it says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Not only does God keep his promises to his children, he also keeps his promises to punish sinners. As believers in Christ, we lean upon the promises of God, and rightfully so. Are we as aware that there is a day of judgment coming for all those who are not in Christ? For all those who are tampering with God's ways, who are disregarding him, there is a day await, a future day of judgment. And we see this unfold in this text before our very eyes. And God had warned and God had foretold this would happen. And so even in the midst of Israel's sinful choices, God is using their sin in a way to accomplish his purposes. And in this case, his purpose is to judge the sinfulness and the sinners, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, judge them. 
And they're gone. They're removed from the picture. God told them that, told Eli, there will not be an old man in your house. I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. There shall not be an old man in your house forever. The descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. God told them that Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day. Not only was God's word established in the fulfillment of his judgment on these evil men, but it also established Samuel as a true prophet. One of the tests of whether a person is true prophet of God is when they prophesy, does what they prophesy come true? And this is happening in Samuel's uh, case. And this is chilling. In chapter 3, verse 14, God's speaking here. I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. If you remove God's only means for your sin to be covered, where does that leave you? Where does that leave anyone? And here... Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas should have been acutely aware based on the role that they played in the life of Israel, constantly doing sacrifices. They should have been aware of just how crucial a role they played, not only for the sins of the people, but for their own individual sins because everyone is a sinner. And yet they disregarded the sacrifice of God. This should cause us to really pause. And then our last portion of scripture here is verses 19 through 22. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You probably have never met a child named Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. Glory of God has departed from Israel. And I have to wonder, I can't know for sure, but it seems that the wife of Phinehas had more of a sense of what God was doing than anyone else in this narrative. Now, Samuel had been. They weren't consulting him. But here you have her, and you'll find out in chapter 7 that Samuel knew what was going on, and he knew what the solution was, but they weren't consulting him. And here's this lady married to an ungodly husband, pregnant, and she hears this news. Ark of God is taken away. 
She hears the news of her husband, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law being died. And she bows and gives birth, dying in the process. And she's overwhelmed. And it's repeated twice. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And that's the end of our text today. It's on a sobering note. And next time, I hope to tie it all together. And you'll see the ultimate resolution to all of it in chapter 7. But we're out of time, and I knew we would be as I continue to soak in the text and think about it. So what do we do with this today? We're not Israel. We don't live in a theocracy. Romans 15.4 says this, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So God has given us these Old Testament narratives to instruct us, to teach us, to encourage us, and to give to us hope. How does that happen as we read this passage? Well, let's just ask this first question. Well, before I ask the first question, let's think of it this way. And uh, I don't want to allegorize the text of Scripture. So bear with me a little bit. Israel, God wanted them to go into the land of Canaan to dispel the the armies of uh, the enemy and to have this land where they would establish this theocracy and live under God's righteous rule. And so you would see that their spiritual, how, how they were relating to the Lord and trusting in him and looking to him and their obedience was to flow out of this grace that God had given to them through Abraham, their forefather, who none of this was deserving for them. And this grace that God had given to this people, they were to live in this covenant relationship with the Lord that was just marvelous. And by trusting the Lord, that would be evidenced by how they would respond to the commands of the Lord. This, this was intended to be their delight. And as they would submit to the Lord and obey the Lord, they would have victory in their battles. Well, we're not, as I said, a theocracy. We're not going out and fighting other people. In fact, Paul says the, we don't fight against flesh and blood. Well, we're fighting against principalities, against powers of rulers of the air, against darkness and spiritual wickedness. Our fight is a spiritual one. We wrestle against our own sin nature if we are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you can't do this. And so as we look to Christ, as we trust in him, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our King, our God, our Redeemer, we're trusting him not only for salvation from the wrath of God, 
We have that in justification. But when we're justified, we're also sanctified as in set apart. But we're not fully sanctified. In one sense, we're set apart for sure. But it's this ongoing growth and maturation in our spiritual walk with the Lord. And so Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God that has been given to us. Whereby we avail ourselves of the armor so that we can fight the sin within our own selves. And every Christian is acutely aware. I am acutely aware of just how sinful I am. And the older I become, the more I dive into this precious book, the more and more aware I am of who God is and who I'm not and how much I need His grace and His mercy, His ongoing work in my soul. We need that. And we find ourselves fighting and then we yield and we succumb and we take a step back like Israel, and say, what happened? Why did I lose this spiritual battle against my flesh? Why did it get the upper hand? And it's right for us to ask that question, just like Israel asked the question here. Why was I defeated by the enemy? Why did my flesh rule in this area? And so as we fight the sin in our souls, it's important for us to identify the root causes. And the more I struggle and fight in the sin in my own soul, I'm becoming more aware that establishing the root cause is not always as easy as what might appear. So we might answer the question, oh, I did this because of, and we get real close to the action that was committed, and we see a failure here, which that was a failure. But if we keep probing, one, one thing that um, good engineers have to do when there's a problem, you ask the question, why did that problem occur? You try to answer it. And then oftentimes you ask, well, why did that problem occur? And then you answer that. You might have a whole list of things to answer. And then you kind of go through the list. Well, why did that occur? And you keep asking why till you get to the very bottom. And you say, ah, this problem occurred because of this way over here. And then you can see how it played all the way back through. And I have to wonder, are we doing that in our own souls? Are we asking, why is it? that I'm being defeated? Are we going all the way to the root? Could be pride. It could be just, I want my flesh to be satisfied. There could be all kinds of root things. I'm lazy. You know, that's not always evident up here. But my laziness is, is uh, standing in the way of a rich devotional life, of spending time with the Lord. We don't trust in those things. But all of these things are means of grace. Coming to church, hearing the word preached, hearing people sing. We're singing to exhort and encourage one another. And as we fellowship, we exhort and encourage one another. We go to prayer meeting and we pray together. We share one another's burdens. All of these things God is intending to use in our lives. And the extent to which we are considering how God is working and we're trusting in Him, even trusting in Him to use the means that He intends, 
is an indication of how we're thinking about fighting our sin and how we're thinking about bringing glory and honor to our God and worshiping and praising him. So that's what I would say one thing for us to consider. Are we using things such as looking to godly spiritual leadership? Um, That's just one thing. Um, Are we inquiring of God? Are we following his word? Are we looking to him? Are we holding each other accountable to the scriptures, even our leaders? We all need to be held accountable. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli needed to be held accountable. Israel needed to be held accountable. There is a total breakdown across the board in this whole narrative. We need to be in the scriptures, all of them, not some of them, all of them, regularly reading them at a quick pace, but then slowing down, diving deep, reading at a slower pace, making notes, praying over the scriptures, meditating on them, obeying them, actively engaging in church, growing in the word, searching the word for ourselves, being a part of the church, um, exercising our own gifts and benefiting from the exercise of other people's gifts. Husbands and fathers. You know, here was a breakdown in leadership. <clears throat> Husbands, you're a leader, leader of your wife. <clears throat> fathers, you're leading your families. Do you treasure Christ above all? Is he the only one you look to with a relationship with God the Father? Are you regularly feeding your soul? Are you thinking about the scriptures throughout the day? Are you talking about them to your family in all kinds of situations, driving in the car, sitting around a meal table, um, even unplanned situations? Are they precious to you? Does it just spill out of your soul? Do you take as many opportunities to teach God's ways to your family? Then I would also ask of us, are we guilty of trying to manipulate God for our selfish purposes? Do we treat God as some kind of cosmic bellhop in the sky? God, do this for me. God, do this for me. And we're devoid of asking or or recognizing that God is accomplishing his purposes. And we can know very clearly what some of those are. Some of the details, even in the country we live in, we don't know for sure. Is God going to totally turn us over to judgment? Um, You know, how do we pray? How do we live? Is, you know... Those who can't know for sure, but we can know by looking to his word for sure things. Is that our, our soul's delight? Do we tremble at his word or do we twist it for selfish ends? Are we content with humble obedience to his word? Are we content with God being God? He being the sovereign one over all the universe. Are we resting and trusting in his sovereignty? even when we don't know what is God up to, what is God doing. 
And then finally, do we treasure Christ? Do we treasure Christ? Hophni and Phinehas disregarded God's sacrifices. God's sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointers. Christ is the substance. They disregarded the pointers, thereby disregarding Christ. Is Christ everything to us? Is he our all in all? And as if we are God's people, God will constantly be revealing our sins to us. Do we then repent of them and run to Christ for cleansing, forgiveness, comfort, encouragement, and help? And if Revelations 2, 4 through 5 is true of us, where John writes, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If this rebuke and warning to Ephesus hits home to our hearts, then let's submit to what the Lord tells us to do. Repent and run to Christ. To not repent is to presume upon God's grace. And if he chooses to remove the witness of his glory in our lives, then we too will find ourselves in the place of God's glory departing from our lives. Run to Christ. He is a merciful and gracious high priest. He is the perfect and the only high priest. He is the truth, the life, and the way. Run to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of your word. It is so applicable to our lives from cover to cover, from all the books that you have given to us, and they are precious. We confess to you that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. With him, we can do everything. And most importantly, oh, how we need Christ for constant cleansing, constant forgiveness, constant washing, constant encouragement to continue to look to you and to ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.